0: I'm always looking for a way to make sure that everyone who does the evaluating is on the same page with some core tools, that the easiest process is to define, redefine them and define it in a way so that everyone knows how to train it. Everyone knows how to define it exactly the same way and that we reinforce that by sometimes looking at tape or the results. And saying, this is an example of that, or is this not an example of that, and seeing where everyone stands so that we can continue to teach it. You know, if you're teaching people how to make a peanut butter sandwich, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's like, listen, you know, yes, you could do it multiple ways, but this is the way we want to build it.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome back, or welcome to another episode of Up Close In Personnel with Alex Brown. It's been over a week since the 2021 draft concluded. I want to thank every one of you for tuning into the last few shows that included a former head coach in the NFL, Wade Phillips, and a former NFL GM, Mike Tannenbaum. If you missed those episodes, be sure to queue them up after this one and check them out. This week's show left no stone unturned when it comes to the draft process and really the evaluation process for individual scouts and evaluators. And that's my good friend, Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Now, what is the RSP? So 16 years in the making, we talk about in this show, Matt's origin story of building the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. It's the most comprehensive publication of NFL prospect analysis at skill positions. So he's devised his process from best practice methodologies, not only providing rankings analysis, but really showing the behind the scenes, showing his work like teachers ask us to do in school. So it's great stuff. It's easy to navigate. It's only twenty-one ninety-five, And we talk about how he's learned and grown as an evaluator throughout this entire episode. I'll be honest, I had a plan for the show. I, I, I was going to touch on specific things, and, and we just got so deep into the weeds on how to watch film, how to develop, how to learn how to evaluate our previous hits and misses. And we just got so deep into the weeds, talking big pictures, zooming in, giving specific examples that we just let it roll and wound up recording for, you know, an hour and a half. And, you know, I I really encourage any young aspiring scout recruiter coach, anybody involved in the game that wants to grow and learn and, and get better at their craft to, to really take great notes from this episode. Matt's a, unbelievable teacher. If you check out his Twitter account um, at Matt Waldman, he's constantly dropping videos of what, what is called the RSP film rooms, where he brings on former NFL players, current college coaches, previous college players, all sorts of different people involved in evaluating talent, coaching talent, or having played the game to talk about the nitty gritty each and every play, breaking it down to a science. And, you know, we, we touch on everything from The the process to how to get better, measuring performance, why the scouting process isn't an inexact science, but it's a craft that involves both art and science and so much more. So before we flip over to the show, I want to encourage you to check out our sponsor over at War Room real quick for those involved in recruiting, high school, pro level, wherever you're at. War Room is an all in one inclusive platform that will take your recruiting team management to another level. Check it out. You can go to www.collegewarroom.com or www.prepwarroom.com for a free demo today. Last but not least, make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share the show. So, as we do each and every week, flip it over to my conversation with Matt Waldman. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um.
0: Matt Waldman how are we doing man I'm doing great it's good always getting a chance to talk with you Alex obviously last week we finished the draft
1: I know you've been super busy um, with all the things that we'll talk about with the RSP rookie scouting portfolio for those of you not familiar with the acronym but how cool is it to see the draft in, in the hometown for you
0: Oh, it was very cool. I'm, you know, I, I, grew, my football hometown is Cleveland, Ohio. While I live in the, you know, in the Atlanta, Georgia area for a long time, my roots are still back there. So it was nice to see um, Cleveland get a little love, and you know, the, the team seems to be on the come up, which is great. Um, you know, and the the Ravens Browns game last year was probably the best game I watched on TV in the NFL. Last year, and it was probably the only one I watched for pleasure, like purely just like I'm going to sit back and be a fan on this one.
1: Do you find it hard like doing that because of how busy you normally are? Because I'm at the point now where when I sit down to watch a game for just fun, I'm so like caught up going through Twitter and social media and texting people back because I'm not I'm taking a break from work. Do you do you have that struggle?
0: I understand that for sure um because every every sunday i have a i have a column at football guys where i do what i call the top 10 where i i it's my it's honestly my my excuse for getting to scout players i literally watch as many games as i can and and do video breakdowns of those players for one article and i try and either break down a concept that a team's using or break down how a player's doing in his debut or whether he still has it, you know, trying to, trying to affirm or counter media narratives about them. And so I'm working basically from noon Sunday through about two in the morning and then probably from like seven in the morning till seven at night on Monday. So on Monday night football, that's usually the game that I just shut off social media and I just relax and just watch the game and that's it and even then sometimes it's hard for me to get into the game because I'm I'm just gamed out at that point a little bit I at least need like I need at least a couple of days to kind of kind of relax and get my mind off of football a bit before I I get back into it at the depth that I go into it
1: yeah I I love the uh the last one of the last shows you did with with Chad Ryder uh just talking about like, uh, you know, concerts you, you, you wish you could go to and, you know, just make, mixing things up a little bit, you know, we, we, you got a personality. So um, that's been cool to see. And obviously, our relationship goes way, way back. Um, it's been really cool to kind of see. I mean, the RSP really has taken off really the last, what, two to three years, even more so than before. And I know that you were juggling three different jobs at one time and this, and that you were working at the university of Georgia and, you know, you had a a life and this was the side hustle and you made it the main hustle. And as I was getting ready for this podcast, I had such a hard time. I was like, where in the world was the origin of this whole deal? Um, I don't even know if we've talked about the actual, actual origin other than just, navigating the industry because at the time that we met you know I was in that world I was in the draft media world so for those of the listeners of this show that aren't familiar with your work um, kind of take us back to day one how did we get to where we are now in 2021 with the RSP <laughs>
0: yeah it's crazy um, I was a I was a aspiring musician that goes pretty far back so I'll try to make it quick here in some certain levels. I was an aspiring musician at the University of Miami back in the late 80s. I was a saxophonist, and I wanted to be in their jazz um, studies program, which was probably the only thing better than Miami's football team back in the 80s. I mean, it's really that good of a, a program. And I was on probation for that. I got in after about two and a half years, and I was making some progress, but I realized that I wasn't going to feel good about myself at the end of it, like playing my senior recital and performing while I was gigging in Miami, playing in different dance bands and, and, um, big bands and thing and Latin groups and things like that. Um, I wasn't the level of musician that I was seeing. I mean, my roommate was the youngest CEO of a major record label in the history of the business. He was and and collective soul used to literally, um, he was part of Collective Soul. He produced their first album and then produced albums and co-wrote songs with Willie Nelson and Jermaine Dupree and and discovered Matchbox 20. That was just one of my roommates. And I have multiple people I know who've literally played with, you know, Grammy Award-winning musicians. They're like an amazing musicians. And I knew that I was just gonna be ashamed of myself, even if I played like a I just couldn't see myself paying that kind of money, even with the scholarship. to to finish. And so I left school. I wasn't sure I wanted to do. And I became a, I I was a journalism major for a short time at UGA. And within like a week of starting, I was covering Georgia football practices for the newspaper. And I had a little bit of talent for writing. And I met a, I met a sports illustrated writer who was, um, who was teaching magazine classes. And he was a staff writer for SI in the seventies and early eighties. Um, and still contributed and helped start up their Sports Illustrated for Kids um, publication back in the day. And he just told me everything I wanted to hear as a musician, but as a, as a journalist, and it kind of kind of messed me up a bit because I was you know young and still trying to figure out what I wanted. And so I ended up, a job that I had was a part-time job that turned into a career, was working in call centers. Didn't plan on staying there, it was just extra money and it was good money for a college student next thing I knew, I was a man, I was a supervisor, and then a manager. And then I was um, managing large, large branches filled with, um, you know, for inbound call centers as they were just starting. And we had gotten the AOL client. And we were able to out retain customers than what their internal group was doing on a fraction of the training budget. And the 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 result of that was that it 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 was due to the production quality and training programs that that i helped institute with my team and ran about you know twenty five hundred thirty three thousand hours a week of employee labor so i was used to managing large teams and this happened for about 10 to 15 years i was doing um some you know writing on the side a little bit really didn't this wasn't a job that i wanted to make a career but it was And I had become a director of quality for this company or assistant director of quality for this company. And it had 10,000 employees across the United States of over 70 branches. So I had to take some certifications on how to do best practices for measuring performance. And I started doing that and implementing that with databasing and different types of training and, and how to really, it's about how to ask the right questions so that you measure the performance well with little variation among your teams. You know, so that like everyone understands on, they're on the same page of what they should be looking at and why they should be looking at it and how to ask the right question. To And if we can't ask the right question, then we need to ask, we need to figure out how to change the questions and, and keep the process evolving so that we are learning and staying on top and driving training throughout the organization. And where that comes in effect of what I'm doing is that, you know, as I was personally getting kind of tired of what i was doing and this wasn't my plan fantasy football was still a big part of the office space i was always a huge football fan i had written a little bit about football i thought maybe doing fantasy football would be fun so i started doing that i started writing for a site and and i realized that as i was getting into fantasy football while it was just starting to get popular i kind of had a a small knack for looking at rookies. Like at that time, it was a, you know, obviously the level of competition in fantasy football is a lot more knowledgeable than now than it is past back then. So my knowledge was probably pretty basic, obviously. I didn't really know anything about scouting talent or the, you know, even though I was, I used to skip school to really read football, read books about footballs and like an elementary school student. I was, you know, and I loved the game. That was all my experience. But for some reason, I was listening to Gil Brandt um, reading Gil Brandt in a mock draft, talking about a football player, um, and how that if he were a you know two inches taller and ten pounds heavier, he'd be a top five overall pick in the draft. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm going, "Wow, he's five, you know, he's five nine, two oh five. He went to Villanova. Let me look a little deeper. Oh, he was supposed to go to Florida State, but he tore his ACL." I think in a pickup basketball game and they rescinded the scholarship. So he went to Villanova, had like a huge season or two, tore his ACL slipping on black ice, like walking home one night. Um, so he tore the, the second ACL and, but he was like one of the leaders in college football and total yards, returner, receiver, runner, impressed the heck out of Andy Reed at the senior bowl. And it was Brian Westbrook who had a long career, was a top player. And I recognized immediately when I when I thought, oh, I know why he wouldn't be a top overall pick. It's the resume bullet points. It's the optics of drafting a guy in the first round who, if he fails, everybody would go, why would you draft a guy whose record looks like that, even if his tape looks great compared to the guy who might need directions to find the hole who went to a top school and has all the the measurables. So I started thinking, if that's how the NFL operates, and I kept seeing examples of that, then. Maybe I could learn how to measure talent because that's what I'm doing with my with my work right now. I have the tools on how to develop a process and how to keep the process working. So let's try this. So I started applying what I had learned to studying football players. And I bought a TiVo and I, you know, I didn't have access to all 22. So I, I TiVo'd every game that I possibly could, um, and I, I did that for a number of months in 2005, 2006. And then around March of 2006, I was like, well, if I'm going to write this book and I'm going to make it a PDF. And I want to make it as plain as possible because, you know, the graphic design, I don't know anything about, you know, and the, you know, I'm, and it's going to look like something out of glamour shots if it did. So let me look it look like like something, somebody discovered in a desk file. It's going to be about the content and the process. So I define, you know, and part of the process was defining everything that I, that I look for in writing, having a glossary for people to see, seeing the weight and the point value so that people understand, you know, how much weight I give to each criteria point for each position that I study. And so I, I had all this worked out, but then I had to write the book and I had to watch more tape. And at that time, you know, I wrote this, I, I, I rented a hotel room because I knew that you know, with my family, I wasn't gonna be able to get a lot done in a concentrated period of time. And I said, I need a week off. And I'm gonna just I brought my PC, I brought off the TiVo, got in the hotel room for a week, and literally spent almost 130 hours doing nothing but watching tape. And I and I thought I'm either gonna hate this when I'm done and know that I'm not doing this ever again. Or I'm gonna know I have the bug for this, you know. And when it was over, I was like, I was tired, but I loved it. I absolutely thought, I've got to be doing this. This is, I i couldn't imagine a better job than to study football and to study football players and to learn more. So the RSP was nothing back then. I mean, it was, nobody knew about it. I think for the first two to three years, I made $700 in my first maybe three years doing it. And it was only because I had some diehards on a fantasy football site who saw it and were like, wow, you know, this is so detailed. And even then at that point, I was just writing like blurbs about every player with a ranking, but they saw where I was heading and liked it. And that's really how it got started was just, you know, back and back there. And then, you know, the process itself was crazy. You know, I could get into that if you want, but I would say, you know, the crazy part about that more than anything is navigating whether I should keep doing it or not and knowing whether it was going to be viable. Because at that time, you know, I didn't play, I didn't scout. um, I was never a coach. um, And the people who were doing this all did that. So, you know, people would say, why are, you know, well, what do you know? You never played quarterback. What do you know? You don't, you never scouted, but that's why what I did was let me show everyone in a transparent way why I'm thinking, what I'm thinking, and why I why I do what I do, and I think people appreciated that, and it grew that way, um, and the process got better because then I'd start to discover well I missed on a player, and then I'd say it's a wide receiver, and I realized I didn't know the first thing about releases from the from press coverage, or I didn't understand really all the different types of breaks there were and how the footwork is done, or I didn't understand the different types of schemes that running backs ran and how you approach them or, you know, how feet are connected to route progressions and all the, all the details. So I, it would lead me to reading books. It would lead me to, you know, talking to people. And then probably about five, five years in, I got an email from a, from a guy who was in the league who had analytics experience had playing experience had scouting experience you know who I'm talking about Um, and we can't say but like I think he's out now but I still won't say just for the sake of it and he wrote me and he said listen I've been buying your book for the past three years I really like it just wanted to tell you and it was at a time where I was really thinking maybe this I shouldn't be doing it anymore like it was around 2011 and I was like I'm just not sure Um, and I had turned down a a couple of jobs, a couple of opportunities from Roto world early on. And that really, they really took off. And I was thinking, maybe I made a mistake, you know, and I saw that it was making more money at that time, but with the lockout and some uncertainties and how, and where it would need to head and all the juggling I had to do with career family and, and sleep, um, you, you know, it it was kind of wearing on me in that moment and he wrote me and it pretty much changed everything for me because he started showing me scouting reports and said listen he goes you still have obviously more to learn as a scout you know that he goes but he said your process is light years ahead of what the nfl's doing like you get what a process should look like and how to reduce variation that they should be reducing that easily you know different opinions is one thing variations another and you get that. So you're only gonna get better. And he's helped me out a lot. And and it's grown ever since. I've just continued to grow. I was gonna give myself seven years because I figured I needed at least seven years to get some sort of foothold. Um, but now it's been 16 and it's been and it's been great. I've and I've been able to come home. But sometimes I look back on it like this year and I wonder, you know, how I got it done first. I, I feel like
1: the, the reason we relate so well together and we connected right away is because we're both kind of from the same cloth of not from an NFL family, not from a coach, you know, background, not from a, I mean, I've never scouted in the league um, and I didn't play and you didn't play. So I, I, I totally relate to that, you know, chip on your shoulder mentality and I, maybe I have more of a chip and you kind of have a, all right, I'm just going to lay it out on the table. Um, I think there's, I I definitely carry some of that as well, as far as like, hey, I'm going to put everything on paper, and I want to present everything possible. And that was my initial problem at the start. I was so wordy. Everything was, you know, Eric Galco told me to write 800 words on, you know, (laughs) Bryce Petty, and I'll go 1,200 um, (laughs) dissertation. And You know, you've got a hundred different checkpoints on receivers, like we were just talking about before the call. Um, It's kind of like you get into the wormhole of trying to learn more, and then you get down into a valley, and then there's all these other branches of different coaches that learn from these guys, and everything is so cyclical, one, but also so um, there's so many layers to it that you can't like know it all you never will you it's always evolving and always changing and like you said books conversations with people kind of seeking that knowledge it sounds like that was something for you at a very young age um skipping class skip is uh for me it was uh going bathroom breaks i was trying to you know rip off trading randy moss when he was with the raiders to you know <laughs> that's the, after week three i'm like all right this is not gonna work out um Who have you learned the most from? Maybe it's not even somebody that you're friends with. Maybe it's somebody you read a book about or somebody you found a YouTube on or like a clinic. But who do you feel like kind of your maybe one to two people that you have learned the most from on an evaluating standpoint? Because we'll get into the process and I really want to dive into like the best practices for measuring performance because you've written an article on it before, but I definitely want to touch that later, but from a scouting perspective and like watching the film and evaluating traits, who do you feel like you've learned the most from?
0: I would say the, probably one of the best guys is Dub Maddox. And it's just from reading his books, Um, you know, Dub um, was coaching for a long time at Jenks High School. I don't remember where he is now, but he has Adapt or Die. He has a number of different books out there. The R4 System. And what I learned about that, because quarterback is so dang hard to evaluate, um, and there's so much to it beyond just, you know, you know, beyond the, the technical skills, the physical skills. You know, there's the whole character leadership and and how they can bring people together and communicate. But what I really learned, and it's been validated to me by, by my coworker buddy, Mark Schofield, who's a former quarterback at Wesleyan and writes a lot about quarterbacking, And he kind of learned this kind of piggybacked it off of me, he said, is, you know, he's still always learning about concepts, too. But he said, I ultimately realized that the best quarterbacks read leverage. You know, they don't necessarily have to be um, they don't necessarily have to be masters of the whiteboard. They, you know, and remember everything because there's book intelligence and there's intuitive or performance intelligence, I would call it and it's like sometimes when you're a super smart person your thinking can get in your way when you're on a stage and you and you overthink things and you and you think you see something because but because you're so smart and analytical you want to wait for additional confirmation that you don't have time to do and so i learned a lot of that reaffirmed a lot for me from watching dub because the way he teaches is yes, he's looking at the structure of the concepts and everything there. But ultimately, it was about reading the leverage. If the leverage is right, let it go. You know, If this is the main play and this is the leverage, here's how you can tell what it is. And that's really kind of been like, I won't call it necessarily a cheat code, but it really was a bridge in a way where it helped me feel confident about ultimately, what I'm looking for is the decision-making process and how quick that aligns and then how he talks about footwork. So it's really about the alignment of the feet and the eyes and how the feet can provide the stability to carry out what the eyes see. And the feet can also tell you whether they're hesitant or not hesitant. So that tells me a lot also about receiver play that I transfer that to receiver play, running back play, and, and quarterback play, because even with running backs, you can look at them and see that it's about their footwork and how efficient they are with it. I'd say Chad Spann, who's a former running back, with um, he played, he was um, picked up by the Colts, played with the with the um Houston Texans, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Steelers, and then he was traded, he was in the CFL and he was traded to a team that had the CFL's leading rusher. They traded their leading rusher away for him. Because they were so enamored with him. And he played the first game and started to play well. And he tore his ACL and his, I'm mean, not his ACL, his Achilles. And that was it for his career. Um, but he was, he led the NCAA and touchdowns the year that Cam Newton won the high school. And so he was, yeah, yeah. pretty yeah. good back, you know. Um, and he taught me a lot about, you know, and he did some training and he, he trained CJ Pro size who precise kind of his brother came to me during the season and asked me after seeing an analysis, apparently CJ took it to his coach because I I criticized CJ saying that he runs gap well, but he needs to learn zone and these are some of the mistakes he's making that he's going to have to develop. And his brother wrote me about a week later and said, are there any running back coaches that you would recommend? And I knew that Chad was getting into this. Um, and I recommended him to him. And he goes, I heard from you because my brother, CJ Procise, and he he saw your YouTube film room on him, and he took it to his coach. And his coach said, Absolutely, that's these are things you're gonna have to learn in the NFL. He's absolutely right. So, but Chad taught me a lot of that. So I, you know, just learning about the efficiency of movement and trying to tr- and I saw kind of how those two guys helped me kind of transfer the eyes, footwork and efficiency of movement from a intellectual, intuitive, and technical skill point to help me kind of like know what I should be looking for with other techniques. Um, And those are the guys that really influenced me.
1: I I really like how you've said a number of times, you just got to put in the time yourself and make it make sense for yourself, like put the hours in. And I don't know if there's any way to like make this into a drawn out point or anything, but like legitimately, like it takes a lot of time and I wish I had more time in the day to just sit and watch film. Like my interns, the guys that I work with will always like, they know that I'm frustrated that I can't just sit there and watch tape all day. Um, but can you talk about just putting the time in and, and how much you were able to learn just by, uh, really self-evaluating yourself. Cause I think that's a big trait of anybody who's successful is like a certain level of self-awareness and maybe not saying, okay, well, I I screwed this one up. So I I suck. It's like, no, I screwed this one up. Okay. Why? And like, even going back to when you're a musician, like, okay, these guys that I am in the same circle with, they're here, here, here. I am at this level. I need a pivot, you know? Um, but just just from a a standpoint of learning through the reps
0: for sure because i was always a practicer and a hard worker but i was kind of like you know i don't know who i would give the example to um because i don't want to be mean about any player because they all try their hardest but i'm like that i was like that all-state high school star who went to the, who was out of his depth and went to the University of Miami during their national championship years. And they were like three deep at NFL prospects at my position. And there were two more coming like every year. Um, So I knew that after a while, I knew that like, I might learn one day, but it's going to be a slower development process for me. And so when it came to, I'd already been humbled that way greatly. Um, And so when I went to Decide that I wanted to try this publication, I knew I didn't know anything. So it was only, you know, it was really an experiment. And at that point, I liked the work and I saw how much work it was going to take and I didn't care. So it was like, I, you know, giving people nowadays, it's like, well, if this doesn't work in a couple of years and I'm going to move on. I gave, think about it, I gave myself seven years. Seven, that's a half a life, that's like a third of a lifetime for like the average 21-year-old right there. I mean, you know, you're gonna be, yeah. you know, that's a that's a lot of time to 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 st- stem with that. But the thing is, is that I played this, I knew that this process would help. So for me, the process was about this big game of I spy. I would literally just sit down and watch the tape and go, okay, what did who moved before the snap? Why did they move before the snap? Can I answer why they moved before the snap? If I don't know, where do I need to go with that? But like, I would literally write down if the safety moved and where he moved to, if the cornerback shifted what he did, if the if the front shifted, what did they do? Even if I didn't know the technical terms for it, I would write it down and then I would describe what happened on the play for the particular person that I was studying, you know, and anything that I thought might influence what that player had to do. Um and I did that for 10 years. I literally it was like transcribing music, I was transcribing the game. So it took it would take me 8 hours to watch a quarterback at first. I would really spend 8 hours on one game watching a quarterback. Um and I did that probably for 5 to 7 years. So knowing that you take that that if you can take that amount of time where every play you're watching Seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times and finding something new that tells you there's a lot more you have to learn, you know, because it, if you can watch it four to five times and find the same amount of information, then you're like, you're getting better, you know, at that point, oftentimes. And it's, so I guess more than anything is you have to give yourself the patience and, and it's a hard thing to do because sometimes you have financial concerns or goals to, to, to work at, but at the same time, if you know this is your calling, you might have to suck it up and say, I'm not gonna have a life for a little while. And a little while might be some years, you know, and say, this is it. Like, I'm gonna make this work. This is what I wanna do. And I know that if it's time for me to give up, then I'll give up. Like, if you know this is over and you don't wanna do it, then you move on. Cause you're gonna take whatever you've learned from that process and you're gonna be great at something else. Yeah, You're, you yeah. will be from the, so commi- it's from not the commitment wasted. standpoint and the self-discipline that it takes. And, yeah. And yeah. whatever lessons you learn from that, like there's so much from music that carried over to like to me studying quarterbacks. I mean, like I post things from pro musicians talking about performance that relate completely to quarterbacking. It's I mean, it's uncanny. Same thing with running backs and improvisation. It's like, understand, I studied improvisational music. Well, improvisational music has a structure. It has a melody. It has a harmony. There's theory behind it. There's techniques with all of that. You've got to learn all that in order to just play, in order to forget about it all at the moment and play. But before you forget about it, I'm still playing. I still play music. I got a saxophone in my background if this is just an audio show. But I just started playing again, like after 20, after almost 30 years. I'm taking private lessons now, too. I, I play three or four hours a day now. Um, and it's you have to learn so much before you forget it it's got to be done at the it's got to be ingrained to what is it to the speed of reaction where the reaction speed is as if like you know it's just like the speed of instinct and even though it's not instinct it's it's memorized stuff and i think that when you understand that and learn those things it helps you learn where these people are in development sometimes
1: and do you do so you feel like you get some of that now watching tape 16 years later? Um, you know, just from the standpoint of you you said something, I don't remember if it was in the last podcast or in an article I wrote, but you used to write down notes on every single play that a, yeah. that a guy like was in. Um, so some cases it's like 80 plays a game multiplied yeah. by eight. Uh, and you're talking about a lot of one line notes that you have to pull information from to put together a scouting report and do that over 175 to 200 guys and make it into a publication. And, and that obviously is, is a lot of time intensive stuff and you're trying to get more names evaluated. So you had to speed that process up. Um, how do you make that transition? Cause I, I struggled with that too and sometimes i i'm i worry that in the effort to be maybe more efficient maybe more productive there are things that are missed and and it's it's always this battle of time like it truly it i feel like it's always a battle of time because you can never be fully caught up like russ landy always said um a scout that's on schedule is not a real scout, like <laughs> right. you know, like you're always behind. And if you yeah. talk to scouts on the road, they're always like, "Oh yeah, I got to still write up my guys from the last school I was at." And it, yeah. um, how do you, how do you get through that?
0: Yeah, it, it was tough at first to make the transition because. It was like taking away somebody's binky, I guess, you know, like little kids, little, you know, binky. Cause to me, it's the, your security blanket. Yeah. It was my security blanket. It's how I learned. I played this big game I spy for years. So what how how is that going to happen? But what pushed me was when I really screwed up my evaluation of Dak Prescott. Mm. Um, I think that was really the the straw that 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 changed everything because I looked back on that and I thought. Well, how did I score him? And he was, the way I score things, I won't get too far into it, but I use these tiers of that are defined for like what, how skilled they are in specific areas for yeah. the depth of talent. And he was between so many tiers. Like his score was between two tiers in so many categories. So did you and, have him like... So I, I, just for everyone
1: yeah. listening, you know, star is your first tier starter, committee, reserve, free agent. So did you have them like in star category for some, starter for others, committee for others, and reserve for others?
0: Yeah, and it was mostly, but there were a lot of committee, between committee and starter. And so the problem was, is that if I had literally, there were like five or six that he was between the two on. And if he had scored starter in each of those, he would have been one of my top three quarterbacks in that class easily. Um, And so I asked myself, what is it that would have made the difference? And the answer was easy after going back to reading my scouting reports on, or my notes on him. I hadn't watched enough tape. I hadn't watched enough tape of him. You know, it was, it was getting to a point where, I had diminishing returns because I was so detailed on everything, but it's like, it was a great exercise. Like doing the the writing up was such a great exercise because the process that I took, it just goes to show someone who has no football experience other than begging people to play football with me every weekend as a kid really was you know, could get to the point that I've been able to get to in terms of learning. I still have tons to learn, but being able to run a business doing this. And and it's because I had a process that was about asking the right questions. And if you don't have the right questions, figure them out so that you can keep driving your own learning experience through this, because you're going to learn as you do it. And that's what I did. But at that point, when I watched, DAC, and or I look back at my DAC notes, I realize it's like I need to watch probably a third to twice as many games as what I'm watching. And while my depth of examination is helping me and helping me grow this business and build it, because the it's not like I'm doing massive marketing campaigns and have like all the it's a grassroots business. So the fact that I'm I'm I was at the point of being able to come home was through word of mouth and that the quality of the work was decent enough. So I realized that in order to keep up, I was going to have to watch more tape. And that meant I had to let that go. And it was hard. It was like that first year felt awful because it, and this year was even stranger because this year when I changed my process, you know, I've changed my process every three or four years, like tweaked it, but I made a lot of changes. You know, when we talk about the wide receivers, One of the things I also changed at the begging of one of my editors who's been a reader for years was why aren't you just writing up your scouting report as you go and just write up one? Because you have this database where you're literally taking all these notes, but then you've got to like take these notes, put them onto a page and sort them out and you're doing that all in March. No wonder you don't sleep in March. Like why aren't you just like making one final report, writing into it as you do it, and then change it as you watch more tape. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why. It's just one of those dumb things that evolve that you don't think about as you, you're thinking about all these like high level things and strategic things that are doing well, but no one person can think of everything. So as a result, the unintended consequences can be things that, you know honestly, a 10 year old could probably look at you and go, this makes more sense if you did it this way. You know, and my friend is certainly ten. You know, a million times smarter and wiser and more experienced than a ten-year-old at this point. But you know, he was able to give me that answer, and I go, "Yeah, I need to do that." And this year, I did that, and as a result, while it was weird, and I felt like even more behind at times because I was taking so much time and care for these reports in the early stages. By the time, by the time March came around. I was sleeping six to eight hours a night in March. That's the first time in 16 years I've ever done that. Like, like last, last year, I thought I was going to be able to do it the way I was in the past. And for two weeks I did pretty well. And then the next two weeks, like I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it like it was bad. And I was like, I've got to change this because I'm getting old, you know, I mean, I'm 51. I mean, I'm not ancient, but I'm certainly old enough now that like, I can't pull the all-nighters that I did even 15 years ago and like feel better about that, you know, and feel okay. So like I, if I want to do this for the next 20 years, I better be able to get at least, you know, six to eight hours of sleep, at least every other night, you know, as opposed to like going, you know, when in my thirties and early and mid forties, like sometimes going two to three days with only four to five hours of sleep, and sometimes only four to five hours sleep in two to three days, de- in two or three days, I, you know, over a period of a month or two. I mean, I can't, couldn't do that. I can't do that anymore. I know that that's time is coming to an end or my time's coming to an end prematurely to like, to live and keep watching films. So, so, so my, my,
1: my time in life
0: is, gonna yes, be I'm going to, I'm going to, my wife, my wife would say to me, I mean, she'd say, you work so hard. People don't know They think that, oh, he must be he's so lucky to watch football and talk about football for a living, you know, and she's like, I'm afraid that I'm going to find him like lifeless at his desk one day because he doesn't get sleep like it's, you know, and that's the so I mean, and I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but anybody who scouts and watches tape has been through that, you know, it's just that that's, you know, that's why it was like a combination of missing on Prescott and, and other players, but Prescott was really the one where I remembered very vividly. It was like, if I had watched more tape, I would have had a better, I would have probably arrived at a better decision with enough of these tiers that I would have felt more definitive of putting them in one place or the other. And it probably would have driven his grade up based on what I'm seeing in the NFL. And then going back and watching some games I didn't watch and saw... Oh, I was leaning between one or the other, but I hadn't seen enough.
1: So I, can you talk about those traits? Just because I, I mean, everybody loves talking about quarterbacks. It was so funny that you said that I was talking to somebody in the office and they're like, Hey, my roommate asked me who are the top five quarterbacks in the NFL. And obviously I do not have time to break down all the NFL quarterbacks and rank them out, but just generically as a, I am technically a casual watcher of the NFL. I try to do a lot of post-draft and like summer work, you know, watching top guys and bottom guys. And, you know, you have your Pat Holmes, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, and you get to five and, you know, obviously Deshaun Watson's got his issues and uh, and Josh Allen is kind of like in the mix, but Dak Prescott's right there, even with the injury. And I mean, like it or leave it have your opinion he's a top 10 quarterback in this league for
0: sure so what what did we miss i think we missed i think i think one of the things that we missed probably was his ability to process the field fast enough and make the right call i think that i probably i saw plays where he had some at placement issues with accuracy that i think i overstated because if I had watched more, I saw evidence of him doing some of the same things correctly um, and showing the placement that he needed to show. Um, absolutely, I think his pocket presence is better than what I thought it was. I probably, I probably over, I was probably overly cautious about his pocket presence, when in fact it was better than I thought. And i think i still had some things to learn about pocket presence even like five years ago like that i i was looking at more prescribed types of footwork and i was looking for that sometimes on a level that i was a little too literal with it as opposed to like how does he move how does he anticipate how does he feel some of the pressure what kind of things what kind of what should I know more about the pocket, you know, in terms of how it's set up and what are the proper escape lanes that quarterbacks often have based on the type of pressure that's coming in. Um, And so there was some of that. Um, Those were enough. Those three right there. I think if, if I had higher grades, he would have absolutely been in the conversation as a result, he was like seventh on my board And if I had like changed those, he would have easily been at least third and would have been like within the same, within the same same tier as like, um, you know, Wentz and and Goff at that point. Wow. I did not think we would go down that
1: rabbit hole, but that was really cool Um, just to hear kind of your (laughs) process. Um, Yeah, honestly, I kind of want to stay on this route. Um, Anywhere you want, man. You said best practices for measuring performance. And that is something that I struggle with constantly. How do we evaluate our wins and losses in recruiting and scouting and evaluating? And there's so many data points that it's kind of like, all right, yeah, PFF, you worry about all that stuff. Uh, (laughs) You you and your army, Um, Steve Palazzolo, y'all got to figure it out. Um, But when you're you're like a a, a G5 school and you're trying, you know, each and every day is another massive challenge. And I'm wearing a lot of hats as as are our position coaches, like the difference between a position coach at a G5 is no different than the difference between a position coach and the difference between a G5 coach and a P5, like power five, where they've got an assistant, you know, intern, they've got a QC, they've got a recruiting intern and they probably have somebody running their social media um, is like the difference between a, a Bengals, you know, position coach and somebody that's working, you know, with whoever has the biggest, you know, scouting department, which I, yeah. I couldn't name off the top of my head, you know, because like the Bengals do so much. Where where do you start? Because you said reduced variation. And um, I was econ. I was an econ major. I did, you know, regression analysis. I know how it works. I just know how much time it takes. And yeah. it, it's kind of like, for, for me, it's a little bit of diminishing returns. So I I really mainly focus on, okay, for the guys that we we know we hit on, okay, what has made them successful? Were, were there any things that maybe we overlooked um, that were positives that enable them to succeed? Or is it stuff that, that we noticed? And then with the guys that you quote unquote miss on or don't make it in your program, okay, let's define why that happened and try to implement a kind of safeguard for, okay, if the guy has this red flag, we have to have this to offset it from a, a grading standpoint, from a, uh, a makeup standpoint. Yeah,
0: compensating factors.
1: Compensating factors. Yeah. Because it's a sliding scale. There's so like I I truly believe there's no black and white in evaluating it's you live in the gray constantly. And I hate the inexact science like label because it's just, yeah, it's an inexact science because we're not putting enough time and energy into the right places at times. So like, where do you start when you're trying to self evaluate and, and quality control? Cause that's something that you've written about. You've talked about a lot, but like, where do you start?
0: Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and it, I, I like to call scouting a craft because that way it, it's like art and science together. Um but and obviously it would be highly presumptuous of me to like think that I have any of this figured out as someone who just does this by myself now um, and has never done any work within the environment of a football organization at college or or NFL. So You know, with that in mind, my experience comes from doing quality and I was an operations manager and a quality director. And then and I did operations management in two different types of industries, really three. Um, So with that in line, for me, the first thing is I'm always looking for a way to make sure that everyone who does the evaluating Is on the same page with some core tools, you know that we that the easiest processes to define we define them and and we kind of have a way of. Defining it in a way so that everyone knows how to train it everyone knows how to define it exactly the same way and that we reinforce that by sometimes looking at you know tape or the results. And saying, this is an example of that, or is this not an example of that and seeing where everyone stands so that we can continue to teach it and make sure that it's, you know, that, you know, if you're teaching people how to make a peanut butter sandwich. You know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's like, listen, you know, yes, you could do it multiple ways, but this is the way we want to build it and, and I want everyone to do it this exact way. Because it's just a it's just a sandwich. You know, this is the way we're doing it. Where I understand that you're that you may have different ideas about whether a player can be good or not, but we shouldn't have a different idea about how a player, what type of movement we want to see from a player, what type of footwork we want to see, whether they, you know, they read certain things the right way. You know, we should be able to define that at least. And if we do that and teach to that and reinforce that everyone's seeing these things through, I, you call it calibration if you want, calibration sessions, film watching sessions, some sort of scout continuous school. Yeah. yeah, scout school meetings every every month, every two weeks, whatever you can do as long as it's regular for an hour or two. You can get a lot out of that because once everyone's on the same page, what you do, you reduce the, the mess ups where people just... They didn't see it. They didn't see it the way they should have seen it. Now, at the same time, what it also does is it allows people to say, we don't really have a definition for this. We don't really have a way of defining why this is good, but we can all agree this is good. Like we want this, but according to the way that we're defining it, we wouldn't take him, you know, and that's wrong. And so then we've got to, but then that group's got to say, well, what kind of questions should we ask then how do we change the question how do we change the how do we change that process so that we're that we're at at a point of being able to say all right well yeah he's got speed but he can't relate really, he can't get separation you know well we've got to separate speed from separation because they're two different concepts one drives one helps drive the other but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you have they're mutually exclusive you know oftentimes you know because a guy can be slow off the jam he can be he has bad short area quickness he doesn't use his feet well he doesn't he's slow reading the coverage and knowing what route he's supposed to run whatever all these things are you've got to learn how to break these things apart because what i see and i see this with the nfl and this is where like the, the the guy we both know kind of first wrote me about my work is that He's like, when you score things the NFL does, which is this whole zero through nine, it's like every employee evaluation I ever saw in the corporate world. And I say this a lot. It's like, you know, no one gets a nine, no one gets a zero, you know, everyone, everyone they're not sure about goes in the fourth round. Living the know, fence. You know, yeah. And except it's the, except the devil owns the fence. Exactly. And that's the exactly. And it's one of those deals that if you you so everyone has an, you can have great scouts, but if your process doesn't make them, doesn't allow them to bring out their greatness, then you're, you're literally anchoring your scouts because especially your young scouts and your new people, because they're just trying to make sure that they do a good job and they're not as secure about their role. They're trying to figure out what you want. And if you're not clear about what you want, and you're not reinforcing what you want, and you're not training to how things are going to change, then the only people who are going to make it through are the grizzled folks who have enough confidence themselves in themselves and the guts to say, No, man, I know that this is what you're saying you want, but you really want this. And because they've been through the wars enough, they can have those conversations, and the GM's not going to give them the side eye or wonder about them. And the person who's and they don't have the fear of that happening, even if it does, you know, to the extent that maybe some of the younger mid-range guys do, because it took so much work for them to get here. And now they're like worried about hanging on to it, that these things, you can't blame them for w- worrying about that stuff. Yeah, so it's, jobs, it's
1: job security in, in, in a way. And it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's like a language too, because, you know, a um, uh, uh, 5 Whatever with a designation on it or a certain color changes it. And I re, I retweeted, I don't know if you saw it, but um I don't remember who the writer was. They uh pulling it back up. Mike Rice with I mean he does a phenomenal yeah. job with the Patriots. And he took this this uh transcription from a call with, with Bill Belichick, and he's like, Bill's basically saying I don't rank them one, two, three, four, five. Like it's combination of numbers, letters, colors and all these different things coding wise. And I just feel like the contextual side of it is what makes the difference. And then quantifying the
0: context is the hardest part. Yes, yes. And it's like, that's, it's a very difficult part. Cause, you, cause you want it, cause you want to move away from being
1: binary, like one, yeah. two, three, four, five and create the context. But you also want to be able to self, you know, evaluate and quality control so it's this like war of two sides of your brain
0: yeah and when you do it it's like one of the things that i find is that obviously i don't i'm lucky because i don't have to evaluate character i don't have to evaluate leadership i you know i'm only in the sphere where i'm evaluating what's on the field and that's a fairyland for most scouts okay so i realize that i'm in fairyland with that um and that's fine but the, the, for me, still, when a player doesn't perform, I can say, okay, did, I have to be able to see what he did on the field. If he never saw the field, then I don't know whether that has to do with the draft capital that he had and that he barely got any reps and the team just felt like he wasn't a great fit. Hakeem Butler with the Arizona Cardinals is a good example of that because um, even though he he's stuck as a tight end on the Philadelphia Eagles, apparently one of the guys we know, Fran Duffy, who works with the Eagles a bit said that, you know, the Carolina Panthers said he flashed in practice as a wide receiver. They just, you know, but because of the, the UDFA kind of capital now at this point or UFA capital, because he was let go and didn't hit with, had no film. They don't know how to really look at him. And he's at the bottom of the, the, the pecking order, which then means we don't really have plans for him. You know, he's just a he's a contingency option in case people get hurt, then we'll figure out what we have in him. And you know, that's happened with tons of players. And so, you know, if that's done and I can't see the player, that's fine. If it's an off-field thing, I can't deal with that. So then I'm looking at I'm just looking at how the NFL plays these players. And was it something that was it an, was it an issue of scheme fit and me not projecting the scheme fit well? Was it an issue of that he didn't athletically he didn't move as well as I projected him to um, that he didn't fit the athletic components the way that I expected um, because you know I look at you know metrics all the time and and I measure that but I may I have a wider scale of what works for the to the NFL in my opinion. I've made a wider scale for my evaluation than maybe what some people do. Like I've seen Gil Brandt scale and I've kind of widened some of those numbers out a little bit because what I've discovered is like you said, about compens- compensating factors or compensatory factors, you know, you, if you can, if you're five foot nine and 195 pounds and you run fast and you can leap 40 inches and you have great leverage and you have great stop, start ability and can run good routes. And you're tough as nails, um, you know, I'll take Steve Smith over Jonathan Baldwin. You know, that's and that, you know, especially if they're even going to play the same role on the outside and and win jump balls. If that's they're still gonna do that, I'd still take Steve Smith because of the compensatory factors there. But at the same time, if I missed because I saw Jeremy Gallen and I thought this guy has the compensatory factors, and it turns out that he didn't. You know what are those factors that I missed on, and do I need to do I need to alter my scale, or is it something else that I missed? Is it a technique issue? Is it ability to understand? You know these different things. So I'm looking at that kind of stuff, and usually what just comes down is what it comes down to overall, because we can get in the weeds on all of this. Is just uh, you know does does the uh, player you know, can I answer the question? Can I answer, does the question that I'm asking, that's what it is. Does the question that I'm asking fit what I see with the player? And if it doesn't, I either need to um, split out the question, change the question entirely, or add a new add a new question to it. And I find with valuing players, I'm starting to see the potential benefits of that When I have so much criteria, while it seems like a pain to make and it seems like a lot of work to do, the more criteria I have, the more it allows me to value players who are very different because you can have more winning combinations. And at the same time, you still have losing combinations. You still have combinations where it just doesn't work. You know, but you can have, if you have enough criteria and the weights aren't too, overly distributed one or the other, you can still like DK Metcalf and you can still like Sterling Shepard, you know, and if you can get, if you can get it right on both of those guys and you know, one has a broad base of talent and the other one has a very narrow, but deep one. I mean, that's, that's what you're looking for. And that's I think versus that's depth. Yeah. yeah. Breath is depth. And that's what I, that's what I've kind of evolved to. This is really good stuff. Um, I'm glad that I, I don't get to talk about this stuff as much as I like. So I love that you're asking me these questions. I've been the minute you had me on and you wanted to talk about this. I was just like, this is going to be my favorite podcast all year. You know? Um, so
1: there were, there were a couple of things that you said, um, obviously the athletic fit. You know that's one of the questions like, hey, he's just not fast enough? he's just not big enough. And those things are very easy to quantify. Those are very easy to spot um, you know, the compensatory factors of like, okay, well, he's a smaller guy, but he does this to compensate for it. You know those are things that you can kind of see on the film what what I originally wanted to talk about. And honestly, we we covered probably even a better topic just in terms of how to evolve as an evaluator and i really appreciate your time because um you know i try to keep keep my guys under an hour and i love it when i go over because i know that we're having a good conversation so uh scheme fit scheme fit um you got you got like 20 more minutes
0: absolutely i got more whatever time you want man love it
1: all right so when you talk about make like okay did we make a mistake from a scheme perspective how do we look at that as an evaluator because i it, we, we talked about it off air it's, it's frustrating when people are like oh well he's coming from you know one of these college air raid systems and oh you know these spread systems and it's the most generic overused killer of a quarterback or anybody on the offensive skill positions and at the end of the day they're running all the same concepts, passing game wise, that the <laughs> NFL is running. Like mesh is mesh, drive is drive, um, you know, scan is scan, smash China is China, China. Smash. smash is smash. Yeah. Like all of these are the same concepts. They're just different verbiage. And I mean, just from from my perspective, before I, I really want to hear your side because you watch so many more college players. But when we talk about high school players and even transfers. I want to know what all were you assigned to do like what all was on your plate i want to hear it from you i want to hear from your coach like were you making checks okay how did you make checks what was your thought process and you know from getting on zoom getting on the whiteboard when you're in person when hopefully we get it out of this dead period um and you hear them talk through it talk through their process then you can hear a lo- a different level of mastery and it's not even necessarily that they're saying what exactly we're doing but it's do you have mastery within your scheme? How involved is your scheme? That will tell us how how much we will have to teach you, and then that becomes another contextual piece to the evaluation. And you can't really put a grade on it, but you can definitely uh, grasp. Okay, this kid is a developmental guy. He's probably going to need the whole first year. Yeah. Um, but when you're looking at it from evaluating college players and NFL players um how do you approach that
0: yeah I mean for me it's for for every position I mean I could talk about this but I'll start with quarterback is that I want to see there's the science of the game and then there's the craft of the game or the poetry of the game maybe because you know there are players who they can translate the whiteboard really well. Like they, their whiteboard game is amazing. They know where everything is supposed to be. You can tell even when they're throwing the ball sometimes to a bad effect, because sometimes what happens is when that, that third read is, is available to them on the opposite side of the field, they know it's available to them. Like it instantly clicks to them, but they don't have the poetry to, to understand, that when, they, when they're turning and throwing to this, that it's not always wide open, that maybe it's gonna be covered or that they don't have a feel for what I call the ancillary coverage, like the coverage that's not directly on the receiver. Maybe there's man coverage or a zone cover um, on a receiver running a certain route but there's a defender within the area that if he's aware enough of what he's of what's happening can peel off his coverage to cut off or undercut a route. Um, And so oftentimes what I'm looking for there is, does the quarterback see beyond what he's memorized? Does he, you know, does, you know, can he make adjustments that aren't taught they, you know, I call it the it factor, which to me is um, integrated technique. Imagine that you teach a, a player, you know, five different, you're, you're teaching them five different things over the course of the camp, maybe, or five different concepts. And some of those are technical. Some of those are conceptual. Some of those are game plan oriented, whatever they are. And a player, when you're not practicing, like for instance, I'll give a, a good example of a player that's a receiver, Rashad Bateman out of uh, out of Minnesota. Rashad Bateman, in my opinion, has integrated technique because he can run an out route and as he's making the break, see that there is a shallow corner who was playing the shallow, the shallow zone even though he was being covered by a safety man-to-man and the safety's trailing him on the breakout that he just beat, there's a shallow corner who sees the cover, the quarterback's eyes and drops to depth to to cut off the route. And as he's making his break, he sees what's developing and changes his route to a curl and undercuts the cornerback to make the catch. Completely altered the route, you know? Yeah. And and to do this, and it's funny because I was, I what me and Fran Duffy both talked about. This was one of those moments when you're like come from different your different caves, and we talked about him. And he goes, I saw this play where I and I like ended the ended the sentence, and he laughed. He goes, Yeah, and all excited because it was the same thing he saw, and and so we. You know, that's an example of a guy that it wasn't like he was taught in practice to run an out and convert it to a curl when this happens, because he probably they weren't probably teaching this type of thing. He just knew that he needed to make that extra step because it was happening in real time or Jamie Newman, who maybe not be a top quarterback prospect, but I'll see him on a rollout. And there's a safety or a, or a guy playing contain outside who you just know is coming downhill for him. And he's not like the quarterbacks I know who are super smart, but they're so task focused on the rollout that when they finish the rollout, they realize that there's an def- unblocked defender in their face and they don't know what to do or it's too late. He's the type of guy that I've seen where he may not make the best reads all the time, he may not be as accurate all the time where he needs to be, but I'm not worried about him having enough of a head on his shoulders that when you know, when the criminal busts into his house, that he doesn't know what to do. Like, he, you know, he knows he has a plan. Like he can look up from his task and go, oh, this has got to change because this isn't working. You know, like mm-hmm. I've got to make a change. And so to me, I want people who can... You know, I'm looking for people who have that thinking, that extra step. It's not just executing tasks, but it's seeing the broadness of the broad context of the game and knowing I've got. When I turn to that third read, I got to see at that last second whether the the, there's good leverage with that coverage that's going to be there. I need to look to that to make sure that, or I need to know where I'm placing that ball. That placement has to be on the money. And there's guys that I'll see that do everything perfectly, but you can tell their feet were good. Everything was there, but they didn't have the great placement with the ball and they put it into a place that they had no business doing, or they, they didn't know that the coverage was that there was a guy in, you know, you know, maybe, you know, playing in, in, in the flat or up at the numbers who could peel off his man and make the type of play. And I think that the best players, account for those things so I'm looking oftentimes what I'm looking for I guess is the is when I evaluate for players I'm looking for them to be able to think as the play unfolds in addition to what the play design was supposed to be so I'm fine with and there's two types of players I've found like there's task oriented players and there's creative players and my buddy Mark Schofield who I mentioned again now, we've he's renamed how that to bakers and chefs for quarterbacks because it's an easy analogy you know the baker follows the recipe to a T. Everything has to be exact in its conditions for the for the dough to rise right. You know and cook exactly the right way. Whereas a chef, you know, they can be that way, but they can also be the short order cook who has basically a can of beans, some frankfurters, and and some guava fruit in their in their cupboard and still make something that tastes really good. And it's like you your quarterbacks. You know, I we look at it as like listen. You know, Tom Brady, Tom Brady might. I would even argue Steve Young was one of the best um, task-oriented quarterbacks we ever saw, and same with Tom Brady. Most people would think Steve Young is a chef because of all his running around, but I don't think that worked out too well for him in Tampa. I would argue that it's possible, as he would say, that the system he learned, he had to learn a system and really learn every nook and cranny of it and every contingency and he thrived off that. And, of course, he had, like, multiple years to do it behind the best. Um, but Brady's that way. Brady's that way that it looks like he's creative when I think really it is that he's so prepared and remembers so much and is so driven that he knows all the contingencies. Whereas I'd say Pate Manning's more like the guy goes, hey, you know, if we add some beer into that at the last minute, it's going to make that really taste good because it'll evaporate off here like that. And, you know, and then like do something else kind of crazy that you wouldn't expect, but still <laughs> have the preparation that you, you you know, he could create on the fly like they go, oh, you mean so we've got a, we've got an undrafted free agent receiver, we got this, we got that. You know what? Or Brett Favre absolutely was that way, you know? You know. But it, he was the shining yeah, example the, of that.
1: The conversation of, I didn't know what a nickel defender Nick- was. I, yeah. I know what the
0: hell it was. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I laugh because I always joke on my podcast about Patrick Mahomes because listening to him on the QB camp when they do the interview, and John Gruden, I got to give him credit, those interviews were great because he was sneaky good with a lot of what he did. He would... There were he'd ask some questions of people where he'd make them feel comfortable, disarm and he'd, them, he would disarm and then he'd throw a zinger in there and it didn't even look like a zinger to most of the audience. But he'd ask a question and you could just see the quarterback panic because he knew that he was being asked. I know you can't do this. I know you don't do this well. I know that you want to hide from this tell us on the national audience, you know, what happened on this particular play? I mean, yes. like, and it's, and he did that so well. And like, that was what I loved about like Teddy Bridgewater. Cause he, he asked Teddy Bridgewater about leaving and, you know, leaving the school and going home and Bridgewater was so accountable and so straightforward. And so like, yeah, I willing to be vulnerable, willing to look weak because that was really being strong And then when, then they asked him about what happened when that Florida player broke your jaw in the first quarter of that game. And you could tell he like relished that, like he literally, like he might as well have been a masochist at that point in a good way (laughs) in the way that, and I was just like, how could you not love this kid's attitude because he's accountable and was willing to say, this is how I felt, but I stuck with it. And then also on the field where it's like, you could talk a tough game. But show on me on the field. Show me. You. And now he's like he's like relishing the fact that he broke almost broke his jaw in that game and was like it was on at that point. Like it just turned him on. And so to me, yeah, with these players, you know, you look at like a Patrick Mahomes when Gruden asked him, why did you make that kind of play? And it was like a really ridiculous looking play that a lot of people were like, he's too reckless, but everything he does, that's another thing you evaluate is, is it scalable? if Brett Favre can bring the ball down to his to his knee and still get the ball out and throw it accurately at 40 years old and he's able to do that he was able to do that for the past 15 years i don't care if tom brady wouldn't do it if he can do it and be accurate and keep doing it and it doesn't stop him if that's not the reason it stops him then who cares like who cares you've got there's certain points that you've got to say you've got to, that's how you frame your question so that it's like it's not so much it's this exact technique because if you do it by exact technique, then you are then maybe closing your mind to the the result. Like, does it get the result, and does it project well enough for there to be a good result in the NFL? And you, and that's where it can be getting the gray and be difficult. But I like to be open to that. And Mahomes, you know, he was doing some of that crazy stuff he does so well, and. Grew asked him and he goes, "Cause I can," you know, just in that little drawl of his, and you yeah. you just want to laugh because it was like it reminded me so much of Brett Favre. It was just like because you watch him, and there's like daring genius to his game, and he can, and he, and it's there, and he does it over and over again, and it's not always, it's not what Tom Brady would do, but that's okay. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> the, the, the thing that
1: everyone always calls it um, position, feel football instinct. And I try really hard to separate the instinct from the football IQ. Cause I, I see it, you know, the same way. Cause it's like the head knowledge versus the performative knowledge. And, yeah. and there's, there's some guys yeah.
0: that are just instinctive players and yeah. they, they looks- you know, Yeah, Alex Smith is a great example of a guy who every, you know, some of the quarterback coaches I've talked with um, who work at that QB collective and who, who do um, Will Hewlett, who's a renowned quarterback coach, you know, he's just like, listen, you know, there are some, there are some players, you know, you look at Alex Smith and, you know, for coordinators, the, you know, if you follow the rules exactly to a T, then the right answer is always a check down. So, you know, when you look at Alex Smith, I would I joke that he's kind of like, you know, you know, when you t- you were in a you studied economic economics. So, you know, when there's a recession, that can, econ- you know, economists can't call it a recession right away until there's proof that it has been one. It's too late are, by then. It's too late by then. Exactly. So it's the same thing with quarterbacking. Like if you read the leverage and you see your Alex Smith in the fourth quarter and these four to five plays are going to make a difference for your team to win when the defense boxes you in and makes you make that, that throw that they know you don't like to make. And that's, and say it's a route in the middle of the field and there's certain leverage with two defenders and he sees it. And then he takes three, three three patter steps to wait until it's wide open well, the backside, the defender trailing is already recovering and cutting that ball off. You know, whereas with Patrick Mahomes, it's like it's there, it's out, it's there, it's out, it's there, it's out. And I, I'm looking for that with players. I'm looking for that with running backs who, when there's a crease and it's, and suddenly it gets plugged up and the and a and a defensive tackle just bulldozed the, you know, the run, you know, the defensive the guard into the backfield. And as he's taking the exchange, I I want to see, is he going to jump cut and try and jump cut two yards forward to try and get aside from the guy and wind up like getting hit in the, hit in the face by his own defender's backside. Cause I've seen Kenyon Drake do that a number of times with the Miami Dolphins and he's a terrific athlete and he figured it out, but there's a common factor because Marlon Mack also figured it out Um and there's a couple other backs that also figured it out. And they all played with one player, and that was Frank Gore. Because when Frank Gore would do that, and he was running back teaching tape and still is, when that type of thing would happen, he, he understood the technique that you point the toe to the boundary, you open up your hips as you're taking the exchange, and you don't need to make a jump cut. Arian Foster did that extremely well. You know, there's a number of backs who do that unbelievably well. And they know how to be efficient. And I think a lot of times we look at running backs and say it's an instinctive position. I've even heard like old grizzled NFL executives who are, you know, masters of scouting talk about the running back as an as mostly an instinctive position. And I'm like, well, why do they work on all these footwork combinations then? Because they've got and they got to understand all these different things. You've got to be ready and you've got to be efficient with how you move. And that doesn't happen just because you're a great athlete. You can out athlete people in the college game. So to me, yeah, you've got to look for these things. And these are, you're not coach, you know, they don't coach you by saying, all right, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to risk you getting hurt by basically running a run stunt here and shoving a 300 pound person down your throat in practice. That's not what, you know, that's not, we're going to do this five times till you get this right. They're not doing that. I mean, it's just, there's too many reasons why, but as a back, you've got to practice for that. You've got, I want backs who practice for that. I want backs who are taking these footwork drills and understand they're like, when I see this, I can take it one beat and just like, I can change up from using a jump cut. Instead, I'm going to, you know, shorten my stride. I'm going to lengthen my stride. I'm going to, you know, point the toe or I'm going to do a jump cut here because it'll work. Or this jump cut's going to actually be a setup move for something else that's going to fool the the second level defender when i'm actually just using that as a as a ruse to actually set up my press and then move in another direction and i've shown tape of this of like marlon mack on a similar play against the broncos on a monday night game uh, several years ago and frank gore running the same play and like marlon mack gets like a yard if, if if that i think he loses play. And I think Gore gets like eight on the play this year. I showed one of Anthony McFarlane with the Steelers on like a, on a play where the Jaguars ran a a concept where they, they brought a guy in off the right side and he, he sees the penetration off the left and he literally jump cuts into the, into the guy off the right side and loses three. And I thought, I wonder what Frank Gore would do. And I literally looked the next day, I pulled up the, the, the Jets Chargers game, first play of the game, same exact play, same exact thing they did. And he literally he literally maneuvered it so well, he gained 13 on the play. And this is old man, Frank Gore, who doesn't have all the athletic stuff that you wish that, that running backs would have right now. And he's out playing a guy that everyone's like, was nuts about his athletic components and his ability to move and avoid people. And all of this, but it's again, it comes down to these things, understanding what's separating the intuition from the learned skill and not just saying, you know, again, and as a guy who's an improvisational musician, you know, some, you know, I'm sure back in pre civil rights, you know. Pre-ci- pre-civil rights America, Louis Armstrong was just some sort of idiot savant to a lot of white people out there when he was actually a master craftsman of the trumpet and basically helped invent one of the greatest musical art forms of the, the United States has ever put out and is still studied to this day in terms of the unbelievable things that he could do as as a musician. And he practiced, you know, it wasn't like, yes, sure. He had talent, but he knew he had the talent for learning how to divide these things up and knowing how to account for things. And it's the same thing with these players. And sometimes we are like, Yeah, well, you know, he's just so instinctive. You know, well, yeah. And no.
1: The one part I would say is a little bit instinctive is vision and being yes. able to be able to like spatial awareness. Yes. Is like <laughs> at that position. And some people haven't, some people don't. The footwork, absolutely. I'm totally yeah. with you. And there, yeah. there's like, um, some level, some people have capped ceilings of what they can be with the right footwork, right? So then you're now evaluating the foot speed and the bend and the flexibility and the burst and to and through second level gear. Um, we we can ha- we, we have this conversation all night long. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I, I want to get you. I want to get you back on, okay, and and let us talk about like running backs and and receivers from a footwork standpoint.
0: I got to bounce, but uh, what were you going to say before we close out of here? I'd just say that the guy a great example of that is Alvin Kamara, mm. like that guy. That guy's like a Zen master with spatial awareness. It's unbelievable, and and slipping tackles. Like I don't really there's things he does with his body movement that are just absolutely insane um in terms of in terms of being able to stay on his feet and to be able to anticipate contact and move his body in a way to basically either um force the issue and and subtly like attack or subtly like kind of bend away in a weird way while the contact's going on he like a boxer
1: almost yeah
0: yeah he's a he's a mutant i mean i i literally he i i think that literally like if we were gonna end this and say you know if you've watched the second half of pulp fiction the second movie of pulp fiction where room with thermal walks up to the stairs and expects to see like the master of kung fu well you know i'd expect if a young running back went up there to learn about balance you know he'd see Alvin Kamara up there. And yes, if Nike, if you want to sign him to a contract and have that as a commercial idea, just give me a call, you know?
1: <laughs> hey, that's a, I love that. Um, and, and as you were saying that too, I just made me think of um, Barry, Barry Sanders. And I grew up in Dallas. So, you know, Emmett Smith was a God and rightfully so, cause he was so, you know, just savvy and he was so proficient and efficient in all his movements. But I just remember like when I first got a chance to watch Barry after growing up, seeing, and only hearing about Emmett Smith, I'm like, this guy is this dude with way more juice. And I just wish he would have kept playing a little bit longer, but hats off to him for, for knowing when to, uh, uh yeah. hang the cleats up and, and, yeah. and we're, wow. we're about to do the same. So before we leave, uh, go ahead and use this time to kind of like give a shout out to RSP kind of plug your, your deal. Cause I know you've got a post-draft uh, edit coming out soon. Um, you've already posted the April one pre-draft edition. So talk about what you got right now for, you know, any of the listeners that want to read more about your work.
0: Sure. You know, the, the pre-draft is more of a, a football oriented um, guide. It's more about me scouting talent. That's really what I like to do. I'll give little nods to fantasy football here and there and some fantasy advice to people, but I keep that separate. I usually label that as the fantasy perspective on what I'm talking about because I really get into the nuts and bolts of scouting as you obviously see there. Um, but the post-draft is really like a 100 to 120 page addendum that I do that I, for fantasy players. And it's, it comes with a cheat sheet where I look at my rankings that are updated based on their fit with teams. Um, and my projected fit with them. Um, And it weighs them against the average draft position of drafts that I watch over the course of this week. And And then I give you like a value that's like a kind of a fudge factor. It helps you understand like, all right, Matt Waldman has Nick Chubb rated as his top back, but no one's even thinking about him being the top back. So here's where people are drafting him. Here's where you can get Nick Chubb at a value, but still make sure you get him and not like risk losing him. Or here's where a player that's getting overdrafted, I don't like him as much. If you trust my analysis with it, you're gonna you're either gonna wait from the fall this far, or most likely you're not gonna take him, make him a part of your draft plan. I do a depth chart analysis that shows you basically the contract length left with all the players on the depth chart that this player is going to. And my thoughts on that depth chart, as well as what I think about the players fit. Um, and that's, a, that's part of the package. Um, and I do a newsletter from June through December that kind of keeps updated on what I'm looking at for 2022 and the updates for what I see during the season with a lot of these players, that's all available for 2,195. And a percentage of that goes to um, an organization called Darkness to Light that I've been giving to since 2012. Um, they're an organization devoted to um, prevent training people to prevent sexual abuse of children, as well as to um, help children and communities when it does unfortunately happening by training them on how to respond, because it's such a taboo subject. It happens to one in four children, It often isn't the the stereotype of the creepy dude in the van, you know, trying to lure somebody in there with candy. It's usually a family member or someone people know and trust um, that ends up doing this. And when kids aren't believed, it often creates more trauma. So this organization's great. We've given $4,000 this year, we're going to give another 1000 by the end of the year, we've given about $5,000 each year since probably since 2011. At that point, um, they're a great organization. So it's you know that you're, you know, the product you're getting that you're going to enjoy and hopefully learn some things about the game from you'll also you're also helping out with a good cause there. Um, and you can find my work on Twitter at Matt Waldman, matt waldman rsp and matt waldman's rsp film room on on um youtube i'm so mad you got a blue check. <laughs> you're mad that i got one i was so jealous Congra- uh, congratulations to thank you. you you know what that's i think it's because i did work with the new york times in the past no and- it might be because you got sixty-six thousand
1: followers but anyway <laughs> if, if you're not already following matt uh please follow him uh if you couldn't tell we love just talking about the the nuts and bolts of evaluating. Um, I had some notes on talking about, you know, just how he teaches through his RSP uh, film room, uh, just series, just search him on on YouTube, scroll through his timeline. He's always talking about what he's seeing on film and, and there's actual like game film that he's going through. So if you wanna get better at your craft, like listen to him, listen to people that he brings on his show and uh, we will have you back, Matt. And I appreciate your time. Hey, man, I appreciate you. This was a blast. This was a lot of fun. All right, man, I'll see it.